Just a reminder that next week is Reach Week. Remember, we're following the small group calendar. So if the small groups don't meet, then we're off on that week. So we're off next Thursday, <clears throat> and then we'll, then we'll resume back. So if you show up next Thursday, that's fine, but there won't be anyone else here, but you can have a prayer time or whatever you'd like to do. Uh, so next week, Reach Week, use that as an opportunity to, uh, to, to pray through who you might share the gospel with or have in your home, spend time with. But we'll resume after that. Also, I believe, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure on the schedule that when, when we resume, the next time will be the first time we study Psalm 119. And so please use the study guide. It's on the handout that I gave. If you, if you don't have that handout or lost it, it's on the men's page of our website. We just put it there. So it's got the schedule and it's got a step-by-step guide on how to study that section of Psalm 119. And it shows you exactly which verses we'll be covering. So please grab that, work through that. The goal of that, those days will be similar to the book days in that I won't teach as long of a lesson. I'll teach about half the time, and then we'll break up for you to discuss what you've learned as you study the passage. So make sure you come with, uh, with having already looked that over and studied that. But this morning, we're looking at chapter one of Passions of the Heart. And as you read through that chapter, hopefully you could see already why I like this book and why I chose it. It's, it's the most thorough book, at least that I've read so far, on this issue of, of pornography because it goes, he goes beyond the issue of pornography itself to the real issue, which is our heart. And that's why it's called Passions of the Heart. And so I want to go through just a couple of three, actually, key truths uh, from chapter one that I want to make sure to highlight uh, because they're essential to us walking in purity. Now, um, I know that whether you're dealing with pornography specifically or not, and I, I pray that you're not, but I know that some of you may be, and we want to help you with that. That's the goal of this. But the reality is, as men, we all deal with the sin of lust, and we, we have to fight that on a daily basis. And so even if pornography specifically isn't the sin you're dealing with, that manifestation of that sin, certainly all of us will benefit from the 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 biblical truths here on how to fight this particular sin. But also what's, what's helpful about this book is while he's going to eventually apply it specifically to sexual sin, all the principles that we learn just work for sin. This is just about how sin works in the heart and how we kill sin. So we can apply these truths beyond just the sin of, of sexual sin. So the key truth that I want to start with is that sin begins in the heart. Sin begins in the heart. And the temptation with sin in general, and especially what I've noticed as in, in helping men with this particular sin, is it's very, very tempting to get fixated on the, the outward fruit, the actually looking at something on the screen and saying, that's what I have to kill. I have to kill that particular manifestation of the sin. But the problem is, by the time you pull up an image on a screen... You've already lost the battle with that sin in your heart long before you ever got there. So if we, if we focus our attention only on how, how long has it been since I last looked at a physical screen and we judge our sanctification just on that metric, then we're going to find ourselves stumbling continually in that sin because we're never actually killing the sin where it finds its root, its genesis, in the heart. And so what this book's going to help us do 
is really get to the heart of the matter. What are the sins of the heart that we're fostering and allowing that are then leading to giving in to the outward actions of sexual sin? Let me just talk with me for a moment. What are some of the external things that we often blame our sin on or use to justify sexual sin in particular? What are some of the outward things that we blame? Media or dress. Yeah, media or the way others dress. Yeah. What else? Yeah, we're just... We're, this is men, boys will be boys. This is how men are. It's just part of it. What else? Say again. Yeah. Men will blame their wife. Maybe it's uh, something in their physical relationship isn't up to par from their perspective. And so they see this as a, as a way to, that they deserve that because of that. Or maybe their wife's done something and it's, it's frustrated them. And so they justify it. What else? Yeah, so the difficulties of life. A lot of times, pornography does not begin with a sinful desire that's sexual. A lot of, really, the, one of the heart issues with pornography at the root is it's a sin of selfishness. You're loving yourself. And so when you get in that mode of woe is me or my life is hard and nothing ever goes my way, that selfish mentality... A lot of guys find themselves going down the route of pornography as a way of soothing self. Of course, it doesn't do that. That's what our sin, our flesh tells us it will do. But after having done that, what happens? You see the, you see the sin for what it is, and you realize, oh, not only did that not help myself, it actually, it actually put me much further down that sinful hole. So it, it can be any of those Things teenagers blame it on hormones or, or just going through puberty, whatever it may be. The internet, you know, if we just didn't live in the internet age, then this wouldn't be so hard. And 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 not to minimize the fact that yes, the internet has brought a, a new avenue through which our hearts can find that that is pervasive and, and terrible. It used to be that you had to go into a, some kind of convenience store and walk in and buy some magazine face to face with another person. Certainly that because of our pride and desire to be thought well of others, that would have, one sin would have helped us with another sin. But let's, let's be honest, this has been a, an issue for mankind since the beginning, before the in, invention of the Internet. So the Internet can't be what we blame <clears throat> for this sin. Something else, when we think about the fact that this, this begins in the heart, that's important for us to think about, is this. Can circumstances make us sin? Can outward circumstances make us sin? What's the answer to that question? No. No, no they can't make us sin. Now, can they, can they make sin more tempting? Of course. Of course they can make That's where temptation comes from initially is, is from without. There are these outward things dangling in front of us. But it's, it's, I think it's crucial for us to understand that our circumstances can never make us sin. So therefore, we can't justify our sin based on what's going on around us or the waitress that's not wearing clothing that's appropriate or whatever it is or the fact that people put these pictures on the Internet. Those are our circumstances, but that can never make me sin. If I sin in any realm, I chose to sin. And I think 
a lot of guys say, you know, it's, it's, it's like it's not me. It's like almost like an outer body experience. I just find myself there again. And here I am looking at the screen and, you know, that's not who I want to be. And it doesn't even feel like like me. And the reality is the first thing you've got to understand is that it is you. You grabbed that device, pulled it up, looked at it and and chose to do that. You did that. And it's very helpful to realize that and start there because as a believer, you did that, but guess what? You don't have to do that. You can, by God's grace also, if you're the one doing it, and it's not some outward force that's dragging you along to do this, it also means that you're the one, by God's grace, who can choose not to do that ever again. You don't have to do that. And and to me, that's very helpful to realize in the battle with temptation. Now, key truth number two, cultivate suspicion of your heart. Cultivate suspicion of your heart. This is where this list of verses comes in that I gave you. These are some verses from Scripture that warn us about the dangers of our own hearts. I'm just going to read a couple of them. The first verse, Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That is literally... That man sees this choice as as the right thing, as the good thing, as the thing that would bring life, and yet in that instance, it's actually the way to walk off a cliff. So we have to be careful. Jeremiah 17, 9, a famous verse, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. David praise in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. The the idea there is that David can't search his heart to the level that he needs to himself. And so he's asking God to do that heart work and to reveal it where there is sin that remains. 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Timothy has to pay attention to himself. He can't, he can't allow himself just to, to live according to his impulses. And then finally, I love the passage in 1 Corinthians 4, and this is one he brings out in chapter 1, because Paul makes it clear that even though his conscience is not currently bothering him about something, he does not see that as... Uh, for sure, thumbs up that there's nothing wrong. He says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. That's very helpful for us men to understand that we it's right and biblical for us to be suspicious of our own hearts. And the reason for that, of course, is because inside of you, if you're a Christian, there is a war. You are engaged in a battle with your new nature in Christ, who has been made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're new creatures, the old is gone, the new has come. And yet you have this new nature that's at war with your flesh. The flesh is that part of us that's yet to be redeemed, that God is is continuing to help us fight, and one day it will be gone when He brings us to glory. But for now, we're locked in a battle with this flesh 
we don't have time to go there, but Romans 7 outlines what that battle looks like. Paul tells us, and that's where I, I find myself doing the things I don't want to do. So that's the reason we have this ongoing battle, and it's the reason that you can't just let your mind drift to whatever you want to throughout the day and trust that your mind is going to lead you to safe pastures. It's not. If you just sit idly and just let your thoughts bounce to where they want to bounce, they're not going to end up bouncing to good things. Because you have a flesh, so the war is not just without, that if I can just with, keep everything at arm's length, and I can just you know, never look at anything and never go outside, then I'll be fine. Uh, there are accounts of people in, in church history who have tried that. Literally, one man, I can't remember his name, lived on a tower for over a year as a way of, of isolating himself literally from the world. Other men in the past have, have gone as far as making themselves eunuchs, physically harming their bodies, thinking if I could just do that, these temptations would go away. Guess what the bummer is? That doesn't work, right? So you don't have to do that. I'm just going to tell you now. It doesn't work, so don't do that. Okay? Don't try that. Um, but people have gone through links. Why? Because we're locked in this battle. And so what we have to do then, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his book on spiritual depression, you have to preach to yourself instead of listen to yourself. You have to take hold of your thoughts. And so and don't and think of it this way. Instead of thinking that your thoughts will lead you to truth, because they won't, you have to lead your thoughts to truth. Guide them with the truth. That means you're going to have to speak back to those thoughts and impulses and feelings and emotions that come up within you and analyze them by the Scripture. And where you find that they are wanting, speak truth back and say, no, I, I will not think that way. I do not believe that, and I will walk in the truth. And you have to do that over and over again. So have a healthy sense of self-suspicion when it comes to your thought life. And then thirdly, the final truth that I want to mention. Distinguish worldly sorrow from biblical repentance. Distinguish worldly sorrow from biblical repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and this is a, a key point in the chapter, and I know you read it, so I, <clears throat> I'm not going to repeat all of that to you. But I do want to highlight again this issue because it's crucial for us to understand. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, he's talking about a letter that he has sent to them. This is called the severe letter. We, we don't have this letter in the Scriptures, but apparently between 1 and 2 Corinthians there was this other letter. And he says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful. I mean, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, think on that for a moment. There are two kinds of sorrow, and this is where it gets tricky. Some guys will, will think that they're genuinely repentant and remorseful over their sin because they're very sad about it, and, and it really bothers them in some way. And, but we have to be careful to analyze our remorse according to the Scripture and ask, is this worldly sorrow or is this biblical repentance? Well, what's the difference? 
Let me just give you a couple of quick definitions. Worldly sorrow, and this is in my own words, is sorrow over the consequences your sin has caused rather than sorrow over the sin that caused it. Sorrow over the consequences rather than sorrow over the sin itself. So we see examples of worldly sorrow in places like Hebrews 15. In Hebrews 15, verses 15 to 17, it says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it uh, many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Remember Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. He sold his inheritance, his family inheritance, for one single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. And listen to this. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. He found no place for repentance, and yet he sought with it for tears. That means if a person looked at Esau from the outside, they'd say, man, that guy is really sorrowful and repentant. I mean, look at his tears. Look at his, his body language. And what God says is no. Esau was upset that he lost the blessing. He was not upset about his sin against God. And that is the key difference about worldly sorrow and biblical repentance. How this plays out in this particular area is sorrow that you got caught. Sorrow that it's taken away from you. Sorrow that your wife now is distant and there's distance between you and your wife. Sorrow that it's affected your sexual relationship and your marriage. Sorrow that now you're embarrassed and you're, 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 or you lost your job because your boss found out about it because it was on a work computer. Okay, that is worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow manifests itself <clears throat> in, a, in some key ways. This is just a short list. Self-pity is a key sign of worldly sorrow. Woe is me. Everything's bad for me. Um, I always... I'm attuned to the fact that when, I'm, when I'm, I'm working with a man through a specific sin issue and he comes in with his wife and it's all about how hard this has been on him and how difficult it's been with no mention of how it's been towards God or his precious wife who's broken in a puddle next to him, it's a key sign. He's sorrowful, but this is worldly sorrow. It's not godly sorrow. Sinful anger. So being short with others, lashing out at others, when they want to talk about it or try to come alongside and help you with that, and you lash out in anger, um, that is a key sign of worldly sorrow. Partial confession of sin. So willing to talk about your sin in vague generalizations. I'm sorry for what I did. Versus I'm sorry for dut, 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 dut. Specific things you did and said. Partial confession of sin is a sign of worldly sorrow. Just enough. I'm just trying to do enough to get by so we can get over this and get this tension removed and go back to normal life. Justification of sin. Look, I, I know I did that and that was wrong and I shouldn't have done that, but here's why. It's another classic symptom of worldly sorrow. And then finally, pride is another form of worldly sorrow in, in this sense. When we, and he mentions this in the book, when we find ourselves saying things like, I can't believe I did that. I mean, how could I do that? I've been a Christian for 20 years. I should know better. I should be better. I, I, I. This, it's this exalted view of self. And what we're really upset about is not even the sin itself. It's that 
I have, I have now lowered myself even in my own estimation. It's this loss of the, the view I had of myself or the view others had of me. And that bothers me more than the actual sin before God. To flip that on its head then with biblical repentance, biblical repentance is sorrow over the sin you've committed against God. Sorrow over the sin you've committed against God. Listen to what David said. This is so instructive in Psalm 51. This is David pouring out his heart for his sin with Bathsheba. Listen to what he says in verse 4. Against Speaking to God, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Listen to that. First of all, we don't want to get confused. David's not saying that he didn't sin against Bathsheba and that he didn't sin against Uriah. Of course he did. What he's saying is what, what has gripped his heart is the fact that he could sin against his God. His good God who has loved him, who has provided for him, has exalted him to this position as king. I've sinned against you, God. That is what's ringing in his ears. And he goes as far as to say, you're right to judge me. You're right. I deserve it, God, because I have sinned against you, my holy God. This is, this is true biblical repentance because he sees the heart of the issue is the sin and the sin against God. Here are some outward fruits of godly repentance. Genuine humility. Uh, not, not a self-loathing, but a, a genuine humility, a biblical humility. Sorrow that the sin was committed against God. Sorrow over the sin and how it's affected others, and that bothering you more than how it's affected you and how hard it's made your life. Full acknowledgement of the sin without excuses. A willingness to simply give the details without any buts, ands, or whys. Willingness to embrace the full consequences of the sin without complaint, as, as David does. That's, that's, that's right. That's right that I understand it's going to take you time to, to trust me again because I, I, I get it. I sinned against you. Please forgive me. Um, I deserve that. Or sometimes there are legal consequences and things that come with that. A willingness to say, you're right, I did that, I, and I deserve what comes with it. Um, confession of sin without being prompted. So in, instead of someone always having to find you out and catch you in the act, a willingness that you know you sinned in your heart before God and a coming out with that and a confessing of that without having to be found out. Seeking the forgiveness of God and others without self-justification. Patience and understanding as trust is rebuilt with those you sinned against. This is a big one. A lot of times when guys particularly sin against their wives sexually in some way, there's this, within a week, an impatience with like, can we get over this? I mean, we're Christians. You said you forgave me, right? I thought you forgave me. Why are we still talking about this? That's a key sign that, that he doesn't get it. He's, he's really not understanding the pain that he's caused his wife. And the fact that, that true forgiveness has been given does not mean that trust is immediately and completely restored. And we need to understand that. And be careful um, to be patient and gracious with those we've sinned against. Uh, two more, genuine efforts towards change both inwardly and outwardly. So not just sorrow, but actually doing something to put forth effort in the fight to change our patterns. And then proactively seeking out accountability. And I say that because accountability only works if the person being held accountable is willing to be accountable. 
It doesn't work if you come to me and say, hey, will you be my accountability partner? And in your mind, what you mean is I'm going to have to follow you around all the time and I'm going to have to be the one always checking in. I'm going to have to ask or you're not going to tell me anything. That's not an accountability relationship. Accountability relationship is, yes, I'm, I'm all in. That means you can tell me things and I will pray for you and give you counsel and hold you accountable. You can tell me the goals you've set and I will check in with you. But you're also going to be checking in with me proactively and telling me when you're struggling and telling me, um, hey, pray for me because today's been really difficult and I can see danger on the horizon. That's, that's how true accountability will really work, proactively seeking out accountability. Now, in the weeks ahead, we will learn from the, the Scriptures how we fight these sins. But it's key that we begin here in understanding that the sin begins in the heart. And that's why I gave you that other sheet, which I don't have a copy of. Can I borrow that sin sheet real fast? Thanks. So, on this sheet, I'll cover his notes so that you can stand up. On, his, on, his, on this sheet here, what I've done, and this helps me, I'm a category kind of spreadsheet type person, and, and if you're not and this doesn't help you, that's totally fine. But if it does, I, I hope it's helpful. It is easy for us to get hung up on the outward manifestations of our sin, like I mentioned, and never get to the actual heart sin that we're allowing that's causing that fruit. So this is to help you work backwards. You work from the bottom to the top. The top categories are the true, sort of the big category, heart root issues from which sin springs. And then it goes to all sorts of manifestations. So what I'm going to ask you to do is, you'll notice there are some sexual sins listed on this, but there's a whole bunch of other sins and you could put really any outward manifestation of sin in this bottom list. Work it back to this next section, which is a secondary root sins of the heart. So these are like internal sins. So let's take just for one, one example. Uh, sinful speech. or speaking harshly to your kids. That's an outward sin. But it's coming from somewhere in the heart. So we go up to the next level. Is it discontentment? Is it bitterness? Uh, the fear of man, what, what, what is the internal sin that we can't see that you're allowing that is making you short and causing you to speak harshly? And then from there, where is that internal sin coming from? Ultimately, it's going to come back to uh, a, a heart sin, either a view of yourself that's wrong, selfishness or pride, or some view of God that's wrong. Idolatry, you want something sinful and you can't have it, um, or you're trying to protect or unbelief in God. It's unbelief mean not that you don't believe in God. It's that you're not believing that God is who He says He is in some way. God's faithfulness, His mercy, His kindness, whatever it may be. Anyway, this is very helpful. It's helpful to me anyway, as far as helping to get to the heart issues, so we can confess those issues to the Lord and forsake those. And then when you deal with the heart those outward manifestations go away because you're not harboring the heart sins that cause them. All right, so I want to leave the rest of our time for you guys to break up and to discuss. Uh, group leaders, just keep in mind, um, technically we, we end at 7 for those that have to get to work. So if you've got, just be sensitive. If there's guys in your, room, in your group that have to leave right at 7, that's fine. If your, your discussion can go longer than that, but at 7, at least take a pause and dismiss guys that really have to get to work. Um, at that time. Um, so let's break up into our groups. Again, Alejandro's group is there. Preston in the 
whatchamacallit, conference room, and um, Wendell in the kitchen. All right, ready, set, go.